Please listen carefully. Carefully, carefully. And welcome to a special Juneteenth edition of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. I'm Allison Dagnus, and I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How are you today, Allie? I am very well. Thank you, Lawrence. It is Juneteenth today. That's right. It's a special day. And um, I know that you uh, and I are both really happy for this day. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Juneteenth? I can. So on June 19, 1865, two months after the Confederate surrender ended the Civil War, a Union general named Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas, and informed the African Americans who were enslaved there, the last in the U.S., that they were in fact free, finally making the Emancipation Proclamation a reality, despite the fact that that proclamation had come two and a half years earlier. So this holiday marks the true end of slavery in the U.S. Juneteenth, which is a combination of the month of June and the date, the 19th, has been celebrated by African Americans since the late 1800s. It's also been called Juneteenth Independence Day, Jubilee Day, Freedom Day, Liberation Day, and Emancipation Day. So this has always been an important date, but this year it takes on particular importance. Allie, could you tell us more about that? Yes, I can, Lawrence. This year, for the first time, it is a federal holiday. In the 244-year history of the United States, the government has created a total of 10 federal holidays, and this year, Juneteenth, to be marked on June 19th, will become the 11th federal holiday. That's awesome. It really is. The Senate approved it unanimously, And in the House, only 14 House members oppose the measure. So that is, I mean, in a a world where we are just really deeply divided and polarized, that is an overwhelming majority. Uh, President Biden um, is signing the measure and it's going to be law. And this year, since, as we know, Juneteenth falls on a Saturday, federal workers had Friday the 18th off. Um, And so... It's a very special day. The bill was sponsored by Senator Edward Markey, who's a Democrat from Massachusetts, and it had 60 co-sponsors and bipartisan support. And so that is just, I think, a really terrific symbol. It's a terrific statement. Uh, it is movement in the right direction. And, um, you know, it's important to note it, it's one of only 11 federal holidays that we have. It is the first new federal holiday that was created since Martin Luther King Jr. Day was created in 1983. And so this year, Juneteenth takes on special importance, not only because we are acknowledging a a real um, tragic part of our past, but also because we are giving it a very special um, significance that we give to very few other markers of our history. As divided as we are and as polarized as we are, and we talk about that a lot on the show, mm-hmm. this bill received overwhelming bipartisan support. Republican Senator John Cornyn of Texas, a co-sponsor of the bill, said the passage of this bill 
represents a big step in our nation's journey toward equality, end quote. And this movement toward equality is, of course, urgent and it's long overdue. African-Americans still, in 2021, only hold one-tenth of the wealth of whites, which has devastating generational impacts. We're still segregated. It's shocking how segregated we are. With 78% of African-Americans growing up in highly disadvantaged neighborhoods, compared to only 5% of whites. And our guest today is going to help us unpack some of this. So, Allie, you want to go ahead and introduce Dr. Coates? Yes, I can, Lawrence. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Rodney Coates, who is a professor in the Department of Global and Intercultural Studies at the Miami University of Ohio, where we have been told he won this last academic year an award for being the best professor on campus. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. So it really is. We are doubly lucky. So uh, Dr. Coates will join us right after this pause. Dr. Rodney Coates, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. My honor and privilege. Thank you so much. We want to begin uh, with a very broad question and an important one, which is Juneteenth. Can you talk to us about its importance and tell us why we are going to be celebrating it this year and every year? Well, that's really a tough question. Um, it's one that America has been asking for at least uh, 100 years or so. Uh, the the problem is both is both a problem and a premise, if you will. Uh, the promise of freedom uh, and and the fact that it came to Texas community something like two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed. So. Imagine here's a situation where these individuals had been free, but that freedom had been delayed for two and a half years. And when asked about that, scholars say multiple things, but one that seems resounding is that they wanted to allow the slaves to bring in the last harvest in Texas. Now, that's, that's the so-called promise, but it's problematical because at the same time that this nation is supposedly finally coming to grips with slavery, the negatives structures are also coming into being. The Ku Klux Klan came into being the very same year that these blacks are being freed from slavery. And mirroring, therefore, this premise of a promise is the horrors of the Klan. And we can get into this later, but for every step that blacks made, there were efforts to push those steps back. In 1865, we had a Voters' Rights Act, 1865, okay, that was essentially nullified with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. 
that were essentially nullified with Jim Crow laws, with with grandfather clauses, with so-called literacy tests, and with poll taxes, okay? That would take another 100 years, this is 1965, before we got a, another Voters' Rights Act. And what have we done since then? We've eroded that act until even now in 41 separate states, there's over a hundred plus legislative acts aimed at suppressing the black vote. Okay, we haven't talked about the 70 plus black communities that were destroyed. We're talking about Tulsa right now, but there were 69 other communities that were destroyed, okay, and, 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 and whites rioted against blacks. So this is the backdrop that we look at this thing called Juneteenth. Um, for, our, for our listeners who don't know about the horrors of, of Tulsa, uh, this, this should always be on our minds, but it's on our minds right now because an uh, important date just passed, which was, I believe, Tulsa happened between May 31st and June 1st. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about the history of uh, Black Wall Street and what happened and the legacy of that? A hundred years ago, Tulsa, Oklahoma, along with over a hundred other black communities were thriving. In this country, Black Wall Street, you got Rose uh, uh, of Florida, you got my hometown, East St. Louis, Illinois, you got Chicago, you got New York, you got all of these Tulsa's taking place. Okay, Supposedly, supposedly a black man accosted a white woman on an elevator. And based upon that, the whites in the community in mass Firebombed. I mean, you've got you've got you've got airplanes in the sky dropping Molotov cocktails on the black community. You've got military, you've got police all assaulting this black community. You've got hundreds dead. Okay. All right. And here's the interesting thing. We got photos of this. Here's the interesting thing. Not one person has been prosecuted. Oh. Let's put this into 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 the light of the period. You also during the same period of time got hundreds of blacks being lynched. You, you also have not only this site, but again, over 69 other communities that were devastated, that were burned. OK, Cincinnati, Ohio, a black community ran out of town. Uh, uh, look, get out of town before sundown, literally. All right. And then they burn that community. OK, uh, uh, these are these are terrorist attacks in this country targeting. What am, what are they targeting? They're targeting black achievement. OK, they are targeting black excellence. All right. They are ticked off because blacks, in spite of Jim Crow, in spite of segregation, in spite of everything that racists could throw against them, are achieving, okay, and are achieving in 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 ways way above the, many of their white counterparts. All right, and so you're looking at racial not only anxiety but also jealousies. 
Okay, so how do you deal with this? How do you deal with these uppity blacks who would dare to step out of their place? We burn them down. Dr. Coates, you bring up such an excellent point. If the argument from the white majority has historically been everyone needs to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right? Everyone needs to succeed. And everyone needs to achieve their achieve on their own merits. And then that achievement is accomplished. That achievement is done. Um, Post-Civil War, uh, Black Americans are elected to Congress. Yes. And uh, communities in many different states around the country, Black communities are successful and are thriving. And then uh, that achievement is deemed as too much it's it's too successful and therefore it is it's not only that that breaks are put on it it's that it is it is removed entirely mm-hmm. so the elected officials go from you know just under a dozen to zero right and the communities are burned down to nothing Um, And then the narrative gets to hit reset. Mm -hmm. Right. So then you get to say, you know, you you really just have to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Let me interrupt. It's even worse than that. Then the narrative is, why are you so lazy? How come you haven't achieved? Okay, you are you, you. We got a whole culture of poverty argument. Okay, that you need to assimilate, you need to model your behavior. Okay, what you have created these ghettos and all of this destruction, so forth and so on. It's 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 like we forget, or maybe we never heard about these other things. In thinking about our politics today, and thinking about what's animating a, a lot of the awfulness in our political divide. Um, I think you hit on something that's really important, which is either resistance to or ignorance of the ways in which history is connected to the present. Mm -hmm. And so I'm reminded of a book by Arlie Hochschild where she's talking to these white Southerners and they act as if 1965 happens and today exists and they can't understand why there hasn't been complete equality between then and now. And it's either resistance to ignorance of or whitewashing of the connection between slavery, Jim Crow, and today. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about the importance of understanding the inequalities of today, the neighborhood segregation, the school inequalities, the, the wealth gap, et cetera, and, and the critical need to be able to link that to how those things are inherited from Jim Crow. Yeah. Let me let let let's let's do some basic math here, okay? At the end of the Civil War and at even the 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 the, the Juneteenth, you've got over 4 million blacks that are now totally free. Okay? That's 88% of the black population in this country. Okay? But that four million added to another 20 or so million that had served in slavery from 
the beginning of slavery in this country. And by the way, it's not 1619. You got to go back to the Spanish and French colonies. Uh, uh, the English were late on the scene. OK, so you got to actually go like to about 1540. But that, be that as it may. OK, but if you take this period and 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 guess we had forced workers coming from Europe. And at the end of their period of forced labor, we gave them 20 acres. We gave them a little bit of money, all right, to compensate them. And we gave them a gun and foodstuffs. Okay. If we would have done that just to the 4 million Africans that were freed at that point, it would have cost us roughly in today's uh, language about $16 trillion, okay, in 3 to 4% compounded. And by the way, we haven't talked about the previous that are also served. What would that mean for today's residents? Okay, that would be something like $40 quadrillion if, if that was just safe, not, nothing else, okay, in terms of potential resources, all right? What about the 60 communities like Tulsa that were destroyed? Okay, well, Tulsa has been estimated as being at least $1 trillion in, 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 in monies that would have been due to blacks that their families would have had, okay? Well, what about the hundreds of black farmers that lost their lands, okay? Again, we're dealing with another trillion some dollars. We, the, one of the um, things that I'm <clears throat> hopeful about in recent years now, I temper all of that hopefulness and optimism with, you know, the the real the realization that people either ignore or resist or reframe all this stuff. But uh, I am hopeful because so much of what Black folks have been saying for decades, if not centuries, is now being shown in the light of day with big data. Uh, so, for instance redlining and the creation of ghettos, the creation of segregated neighborhoods. Um, black folks have been saying that forever, but now you're getting, you know, Raj Chetty with tens of millions of tax returns saying, hey, guess what? One of the biggest factors that correlates with mobility across the U.S. is racially segregated neighborhoods. And that big data, and I'll just mention, you know, black folks have been saying forever we're treated unequally by police, but not until social media and these videos can go viral. Mm -hmm. Can we see a black kid running away and being shot in the back, mm -hmm. you know, by a police officer? Mm -hmm. But I want to go back to the neighborhood piece of that because um, one of the things that I think is really important, and, there, and there's lots that we could unpack here, but in my, in my, in my classroom, when I talk to students about linking history to the present and talking about like that Raj Chetty data in relation to history is once neighborhoods become segregated and once neighborhoods become desperately poor, they tend to stay that way. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, there's inertia. Once, once one generation has massive gaps in wealth, mm -hmm. their kids then have massive yeah. gaps in wealth. Yeah. Right. So it's a reflection of the past. Right. Um, and I'm reminded of Patrick Sharkey's work which just blows my mind that 78% of black children today grow up in highly disadvantaged neighborhoods 
and only 5% of whites. Mm -hmm. And that is directly the result mm -hmm. of Jim Crow. Yeah. That's a direct, there's a direct line, right? Uh, look, the New York Times, um, uh, I believe it was about maybe a year ago, it's got this beautiful graphic data, big data, okay? And it says, let's look at not poor black versus poor whites. Let's look at middle and upper class black and white kids, okay? All right, and let's see what their life experiences and chances are, okay? Black kids, even in affluent middle-class backgrounds are something like 30%, 40% likelihood to end up in poverty compared to their white counterparts. Or let's look at data for uh, uh, a college completion rates, okay? Uh, black versus whites, same thing, okay? Uh, let's look at, at, at income statistics for black graduates and black female graduates compared to white graduates and white female graduates, okay? And we see this income gap, okay? Oh, let's look at access to healthcare. Regardless of income, less likely to be available to black kids than for white kids. Now let's add the caveat of poverty, all right? My state, Ohio, the Supreme Court has ruled four separate occasions over the last 20 years that the way we fund education is patently unconstitutional. Just the money that the state spends on education in the state of Ohio, we spend more money in affluent school districts than we do in poor school districts. Okay, again, around $16,000 across the country, we spend more in affluent white schools than we do in black schools, period. But that's just at the state level. Now, let's look at most of the money for schools come from local property taxes. Kaching. And if you live in a red line poor community, that means that you have lower property values, which means you have less monies that you're putting into education. W.E.B. Du Bois documented over 100 years ago that for every $1 we spent in the black community, we spent $5 in the white community for education. This is 100 years ago. Guess what? Here in 2021, we are still spending more money, okay? Now, this generational poverty, well, there's a reason why the civil rights targeted education first, and there's a reason why the former slaves created their own educational institutions first, okay? Because that's the key to acquiring social mobility, all right? And this thing that we call equality and justice and freedom. OK, in a post-industrial technological advanced society, if you don't have access to quality training, quality education. And by the way, everybody's not shouldn't go to college. OK, let's be honest about that. OK, uh, but but damn it, I just had my roof fixed. That was fifteen thousand dollars. Okay, you bring in a plumber, you bring in a a a, a, a construction worker, a, a brick mason, so forth and so on. Here's an interesting thing: all 
of the construction in the South was performed by slaves. Pick up a nickel, flip it over. You got Thomas Jefferson on one side, the flip side of that, you got Monticello. Guess who built Monticello? Slaves did. That's the carpentry, the brick mason. By the way, that's going out, chopping down trees, milling that wood, and then using that wood and following architectural plans and building these structures, so forth and so on. Right. How do we solve the problems I've been identifying for whites to recognize it's not about feeling guilty? OK, crap on that. It's not about, oh, the poor blacks are suffering. No, it's we all suffer as a consequence of discrimination and racism, the cost of this to our whole society. We talk about what those blacks have lost. What have we lost as a nation uh, uh, with the lack of productivity, the lack of these scholars, the lack so forth and so on? This is in the quads of trillions of dollars. OK, that's what we lost. And that's what we continue to lose. The work of Andre Perry at the Brookings Institute, mm -hmm. um, he's done a lot of stuff on the devaluation of assets in black communities. And I'm from D.C. originally. And so this speaks to me on a sort of very personal level, because in The Washington Post this week, there was an article about how in D.C. now there's this housing shortage. And I guess there was a house that went for a million dollars over the asking price somewhere in Northwest Washington. And that just, you know, it, of course, it made the Washington Post because that's just jaw dropping, right? I mean, and that's all of our dreams, right? We think like, oh my gosh, like I'll put my house on the market and someone will offer me a million dollars over the asking price. That's insane. But the, the idea of the devaluation of assets in Black communities is this idea that if you are middle class and you're in an African-American community and you want to sell your house, uh, so you bought it, you know, you, uh, you bought your house in 1975 and then you sell it now. You're going to sell it for, you know, probably like $30,000, $40,000 more than what you bought it for. And if you're in a white community, you're going to sell it for two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars more. And that in itself already is such a tilted playing field that that is, that is the kind of thing that many White Americans just don't sort of factor in when considering, you know, it's not, it, it is all of the inequality stuff that, that we talk about and that Lawrence teaches about. And it also is the everyday just, it is just a very tilted, it is a very tilted playing field. And, and so Lawrence, I want to link to, um, Mr. Perry's work from the Brookings Institute because he has some great graphics there about, it is a handful of communities around the country where it is not uh, that way, where um, African-American communities are not underwater mm -hmm. compared to white communities. Yeah. Um, um, there, there's been there's been a lot of research on that um, um, uh, for decades. Uh, real estate uh, professionals have told blacks uh, in in um, mixed communities that you want to sell your house at a higher price and a quicker remove all identifying material within your house go to walmart and get those photos of 
white families and, and such and put them throughout your house, okay? Do not have anything ethnic in your house, okay? That will decrease the value of that. It would increase the length of time that it's going to be sold, okay? Also, blacks will pay higher premium for a white house, all right? Uh, then they will. OK, the price goes up if you're black. OK, uh, uh, it's not unlike uh, women going to uh, our blacks going in to get cars fixed. Uh, the price suddenly becomes 10, 15, 20 percent more. OK, um, uh, what what Stevie Wonder said in, in a song years ago, uh, you can't cash in your face. OK, um, uh, and 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 yes, we 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 preserve these inequities. All right. But here's the thing. As long as we make it a black problem, it will not be fixed. Okay. All right. Whites. And first of all, let, let us be clear. The majority of whites, like the majority of cops are in their hearts, good people. Okay. All right. Uh, our biggest challenge is information. Okay. Is knowledge of these things. Okay. Uh, 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 I believe that when, when, when given this knowledge and information and, and, and part of that information is, guess what? It is in the interest of whites that we rectify these century old discriminatory practices. Okay. Not, 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 not for, uh, white, black sakes, but for blacks. Let me, let me give you one more example and then I'll shut up for a minute. My, my, my alma mater is the University of Chicago. Elite institutions long before affirmative action discovered diversity in its student and its faculty. It did so because it recognized that the quality of education for everybody increases as the diversity of the minds in that room increase. Okay. All right. Well, guess what? At the core of what makes this America great is our diversity. Okay. Okay. That's what makes us who we are. That's our selling point. Okay. That is the best thing we got going for us. Okay. And when we give the poor, the tired, the huddle masses their freedom, we all soar. We all soar. Okay, back to housing. Your original question: uh, uh, The federal government and Department of Housing uh, created uh, slums, created redlining, created uh, differential uh, uh, access to loans. Okay, where where white middle class could could flee these communities that were turning black, and we created uh, 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 vanilla suburbs and chocolate chocolate ghettos. We created this this duplicity uh, uh, through our federal dollars, and we are continuing. Uh, this process, even as we speak. I think this is a good spot to talk about um, a, a particular policy proposal that I'm interested to, to get your feedback on. Um, so, and I love what you did with the math because, uh, and Joe Fagan does this in Racist America, and I just think it's a, a brilliant way to look at it. Like, if I if I don't allow one generation to buy homes, the next generation is going to have less wealth. Right. There's a direct line and you can that that 10 percent of the wealth for blacks versus whites is directly attributable to not allowing the previous generation to build wealth. So 
I love the math that you did. And I think that's really, really important. Um, moving beyond that, though, and talking about um, solutions, uh, what do you think of, of uh, I think this is an interesting uh, policy idea, and you can tell me how awful it is and how naive I am <laughs> to think it's a good idea. But I, I'm really impressed by this idea of baby bonds. Um, it's uh, 2% of the federal budget. It's, it's, it's a fraction of what Social Security costs. Uh, it's, it's giving money, putting money in an in a investment account for kids when they're born based upon their income. So, it's not race targeted. Not like race targeted wouldn't be justifiable. But given our politics and given what a third rail that is, uh, you're, you're giving folks different amounts of investment accounts based upon their income, which then targets race because as you know, Coates and others have said, the distribution of melanin in this country is the same as the distribution of poverty. Uh, but, um, and then compound interest over time means that 70 to 80% of that race wealth gap could be erased. What do you, what, and you could buy it by home. You could, you could use it for vocational education. You could go to college, whatever it is that you want to do. What do you think about that? And, and if you hate that idea, uh, what are some ideas that you, that you like for erasing these gaps? First of all, that will never happen. Let us be honest. That ain't going to happen. Okay. You're like, Darn it. reparations Darn it. ain't happening. Let's be honest about that. Okay. I don't give a damn what you call it. It ain't happening. Okay. Now, let's talk about something that can happen. Okay. Let's talk about a baseline of support for educational institutions throughout this country. Okay. All right. Let's, let's, let's right now agree on this is what an excellent educational system looks like and cost. Okay. That needs to be the baseline for all of our schools across this country. Okay. Oh, by the way, part of that means eliminating local school districts and having state school districts and really having a federal school uh, 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 funding formula. That's number one. Okay. So that within each state, we can guarantee excellence in terms of education. Okay. All right. Uh, let's guarantee, by the way, that 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 every kid will not only get this 12 years of excellent education, but they'll get two to four years of college and our training. OK. Oh, these like these two and four years. I am a Vietnam veteran. OK. I spent four years in the army. OK. I believe everybody should serve in the military. OK. Or public service. Okay, everybody ought to have some skin in the game. Two to four years of public service, community service, uh, Peace Corps, uh, national service, military, you name it. Okay, and by the way, for each year after high school that you serve in the something, the universe, uh, the, the, the country comes back and gives you one year in advanced education and our training. Okay, so you got two to four years military service. Uh, once you complete that two to four years of military, so this is every white, black, green, or blue immigrants too. Okay, or non-documented Americans. You you want to be an American? Good. Serve two to four years. You got it. Hello, American citizen. No problems. Okay, and 
for your service. We're going to give you a GI Bill, a, a, a service uh, a, allotment. OK, one, we're going to give you a ticket to ride in our state institutions. OK, one year for each year you serve. We're going to give you a ticket to ride in, in community college. Uh, by the way, Biden has already endorsed a two year community college across the board. We're just we're just uh, saying that people need to have some skin in the game. OK. And now, by the way, when you look at somebody say, oh, you serve this country. All right. Well, the reason why I do this, I started. I was in Vietnam a long time ago. Uh, I was in denial about that service being in academia and all that mess. OK. Somebody gave me a hat a few years ago, Vietnam veteran hat. OK. Uh, on, on Veterans Day. And I wore it to the airport. I'm amazed at people with rebel flags tattooed on their shoulder, walking up. Thank you for your service. What the hell? Okay, <laughs> who the hell? Are you? Yes, little kids. You know. All right. Can I? Hey. Look, okay. Um. I believe that 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 one levels this part of leveling this playing field. Okay. Now, by the way, we guarantee education. Quality education, not minimal education, but excellent education for every one of our kids. We guarantee training and college. Okay. All right. Now, all right. Now, 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 by the way, we can say, all right, we guarantee you that we're going to enforce our job labor laws, so forth and so on. You're going to get a job based upon your training, uh, so forth. So, by the way, why are there ghettos? Okay. One is lack of access to skilled uh, labor, carpenters, electricians, plumbers, so forth and so on. What happens when you train a generation in this, you uh, unveil these resources and this training to those communities. Okay. Uh, uh, where individuals can do what, what my dad, by the way, built our house. He, he did, he did brick mason. He was a carpenter. His brother was a pipe fitter. He did plumbing. Another brother did air conditioner. Another brother did roofing, so forth and so on. There's like seven of them, uh, from the South. Each one had these skill sets. Okay. All right. And each one built their home. And by the way, I come out of a ghetto called East St. Louis. Okay. Where seven out of 10 people unemployed and unemployable. All right. Um, uh, I believe in, 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 in the liberate, liberatory, uh, uh, force of work. All right. And education. Okay. Uh, and we just need to open up those channels for people and use these monies. OK, to give people real hope and real futures. OK. All right. And and and, and damn your two percent. OK, I can give my I can give my grandkids a hell of a lot more than that. OK. All right. But let's guarantee that this generation of kids. OK, will have a quality education. OK, you guarantee that. And and many of these other issues then start falling, by the way. Oh, by the way, think about something. Why is it that the very first laws to control, control black people as slaves denied them education? OK. All right. Why is that? Why do we have this historical battle where the fault lines always is around education? OK. Why? OK. It's very simple. 
Okay. You want uh, uh, Frederick Douglass got beaten first time he ever got beaten because he was he was a good Negro. He, he, he was loved. He was a house. He was he wasn't a field hand. He was a house. OK. All right. He got beat for the first time in his life around eight, nine years old. And it 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 not only challenged, but it confused him because it never happened. So he's listening at the door as Mr. Odd is yelling. His master's yelling at, 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 at his wife. And Mr. Odd is yelling and saying, she said, what, why are you so upset? Why are you so upset? Mr. Odd said, what have you been doing? She says, what? I haven't been doing anything with him. Yes, you have. So no, I haven't. All right. She's going left. He's going right. He said, yes, you have. You've been teaching him how to read. They're no more good as a slave. Okay. All right. So 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 from that point to now. The hardest thing to get in the black ghetto is education. It ain't crack cocaine, the most expensive commodity in our economy are drugs. And those are easier to get than what should be free an education. East St. Louis, that was the community uh, featured in Jonathan Kozel's Savage Inequalities, correct? That, that's correct. That's my hometown. Wow. That's a crazy connection with everything you said about education and race. Um, By the way, my grandfather gets to East St. Louis around the shortly after the turn of the century. He's a Mississippi sharecropper. Um, um, uh, the unions uh, working in the meatpacking companies were going on strike, white unions, okay? And so Armour and such sent down trains to places like Mississippi and loaded up the, 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 the cabin, not the cabins, but, but these, whatever, the train cars with black folks, okay? Promising them jobs, okay? So, so, so they get off the train in the middle of the stockyards in the middle of a union rot, uh, 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 a union strike, and they're told, you've got these jobs. How did white labor respond? They responded by going and getting guns, okay? All right, this 1960, 1913, 1914, 1915. How did blacks respond? They responded by going and getting guns. And you had this race riot in East St. Louis, okay? Um, uh, as a consequence of blacks simply trying to get jobs. But black labor has historically been pitted against white labor. Okay. Oh, and what happens in East St. Louis? Uh, uh, this uh, truce develops where the city becomes blacks lived on this side and whites lived on that side. I grew up in this apartheid city. So Lawrence is a sociologist and I'm a political scientist. And so we're- we won't hold that against you. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate that. See, it's a we're a we're a welcoming crowd. We're in the same, we're um, in the same community. We really yeah. we are. We are one. Um so we, uh, you know, we are coming at this from different angles. Uh, and I guess I wonder, because you had mentioned earlier about uh, the 1960s and 70s and the different group identities, the, the different revolutions, right? So, you know, it was race and gender and, um, you know, Native American and... Um, Poverty and war, yep. Exactly, yep. right? Um, 
have you heard of a a scholar named Ashley Jardina and yep. her book White Identity Politics? Mm-hmm. So the point that she makes is that in all of the you know this civil rights movement of that time and then you know as the two political parties start to differentiate themselves and the Democratic Party becomes more of a group identity party and the Republican Party moves away from that and sees much political hay being made in really separating themselves from this idea of group identity. Um, And then, as we have seen in the last 20, 30 years-ish, making hay with the idea of white identity politics, of saying, you know, what about us? We are the, you know, we are the marginalized ones. We are the discriminated against ones. Um, have you, have you noticed, because some of the stuff that I'm noodling around with now in terms of research is a reconstruction of the idea of bravery, of identity, of, um, you know, who are, who are the marginalized, who are the discriminated against? And, um, how do you see that? As we are going forward in what I think you um, kind of lean towards this, you know, this idea of like we're in a third reconstruction period right now where we're trying as hard as we can to, you know, we had this first reconstruction and then move back in the second and then move back. And so let's just like let's stick the landing this time and not move backwards. Um, and yet the the headwinds are such that there is there are these mighty forces against it. So how do you see this idea of, of white identity? And um, how does that play into how different groups are positioning themselves? And how can progress be made? There's, there's a couple of interesting books. One is how the Irish became white. Another one is how the Italians became white. Another one is how the Jews became white. All of these stories are quite informative because um, we go back to a period when these groups were not white and they align themselves with people of color. Okay, so the Irish, the Italians and the Jews were discriminated against are still discriminated against. Okay, Uh, in 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 Virginia, here you have uh, uh, Bacon's Rebellion. Here you have. Uh, uh, Irish uh, servants and black servants uh, uh, banding together and going on strike. Shut down okay, the uh, ports in Virginia. Shut them, literally shut them down. Okay, The white planter elite frustrated. Okay, uh, In fact, they started passing laws, one of which was for English women forgetful of their status do have sex essentially with black men, okay? And the divers of, of, of problems that their offsprings create, be it hereby enacted that such women will serve in the same status as those males and their children will be in the same status, okay? All right. Now, this is interesting because it only applied to white women. It did not apply to white men who slept with black women. Okay. All right. There's a whole other set of issues there. All right. So, oh, by the way, 
So what do these white women start doing when they got caught in these situations? Okay. Oh, you're going to be a you're going to be a slave now. No, no. He raped me. Okay. All right. And so now you've got this rape myth and and the the white damsel in distress mythology that comes into being. Okay. All right. So we create this myth that 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 holds white women in check and penalizes them. Okay. And we tell white males in particular that you know what? You are white. Okay. All right. You're not. Okay. And you have higher status because of such. Now let's zoom forward three, four hundred years. And once again, we're reminding blue collar and poor whites that they are white and they have problems. And the reason why they have problems is because of all these blacks on welfare and all these blacks on drugs and all these blacks and immigrants taking their taking their jobs. So let me give you one more case in point. This is interesting. I'm, I'm in my house. It's it's now, what, 15 years old, I guess. OK, when it was being built in the height of the housing boom. OK, uh, one out of every third construction workers was Mexican. OK, uh, uh, in fact, you'd have a Mexican team. And only one would speak English. Uh, they would come and lay the foundation or. Do, uh, do the studs or whatever, okay? And there was a demarcation. They did the lower status blue collar construction, whereas whites did the upper status blue collar working. You rarely saw a black, okay? Then the bubble burst. Oh, by the way, during that period of time, there were signs throughout. I live in Butler County, okay? Signs throughout Butler County saying, you know what? We welcome you Hispanics and Mexicans. We love you, okay? When the bubble burst, those signs of welcome become, if you don't speak English, we don't want you here. The sheriff of Butler County, in fact, he's still sheriff, he got elected because he said, we need to get tough on immigrants. They are taking away these good jobs. That's when the bubble burst, okay? All right, uh, 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 all of a sudden, these 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 jobs that the whites did not want. OK, now they want. Oh, let me give you one last case in point. OK, if we paid farm workers just the minimum wage. OK, just the minimum wage. Right. If we paid the, the, the butchers that, that do our chicken, that works in the chicken factory, so forth. So these are Hispanic and black women. If we paid them just the minimum wage, first of all, our agriculture and meat products would go up at least a third to a half. OK. Oh, we don't want to pay them. A regular price. Last thing. OK. Now we're told that we can't get waiters and waitresses and people work at McDonald's and stuff because we're giving them too much money in unemployment. OK. Uh, and they don't want to work for sub minimum wages. OK. Uh, and they're the problem. OK. We problematize these people as opposed to the structure. OK. So back to the issue of white identity, white identity politics targets people of color 
as the source of their problems. Okay, to fix the problem, we need to fix not the structure, they argue, but we need to fix these people. We need to keep them in their place. So that's over policing and militarization. Oh, by the way, they're doing any drugs. Oh, uh, now, now, isn't it strange that when black folks are doing opiates, it's drug abuse. When white suburban housewives are doing opiates, oh, darn it, they have a psychological problem. At the same time that we're having what I what I believe is a true racial awakening. And again, you can tell me I'm wrong about that. But I, I think this is a there's been a rupture. I think that a certain segment of the white population is truly changed. But uh, unlike other periods, this is not a shared progress. So uh, at the same time, there is a segment of the population that was moving in a different direction. And in reaction to that rupture and awakening, I think is accelerating in a different direction. So I wanted you to comment on just, I guess, your feelings about the immediate future of the U.S. in light of the great racial awakening, which I believe is a true racial awakening, which I believe is going to be a net positive for our society at the same time that, you know, my students always ask me, why are you so pessimistic right now? Because you told us this stuff was always there. So if it was always there, what's new now? What I tell them that's new now is I say, you can go on TV tonight and you can look at somebody who a large segment of the population calls a journalist who's not a journalist, but who a large segment of the population calls a journalist who is saying white nationalism is legitimate. That's different, right? So could you just comment on how optimistic you are given those two very divergent trends? Let's, let's look at where we are at this moment, okay? We have one group of American citizens that honestly believe that Donald Trump is still the president of the United States and he's going to walk back into the White House on August 21st or something like that. Okay. And that's a sizable chunk of people. You've got 7 million people on this hand that firmly understand that Biden won the election. Okay. All right. And, and, and these two forces literally are competing now for dominance. Okay. That's what we're seeing played out. And you've got political leaders on both sides of the equations that are pushing those agendas based upon the dynamics within that. Damn the truth. Okay. All right. Damn the truth. This is the reality that we want to, we want to construct. Okay. I have hope because I have students, okay, because because we're having this conversation, okay? I have hope because as I tell my students, and I just got an award for teaching, as I tell my students, okay, I don't, I don't know a damn thing about teaching, okay? But here's the thing. My job is to encourage learning. Okay, I don't know nothing about teaching, but I know about encouraging learning. 
Okay. And by encouraging learning, I'm helping my students to challenge truth claims. Okay. And that challenge starts with me. Okay. You get extra credit if you catch me in a misstatement. And I purposefully make misstatements. Okay. Or sometimes because I'm 30 years into the field and I slip up, sometimes I do it because I, okay. Either way it goes, they get points for, for, for questioning and, and, and the, my truth claims. Okay. Okay. Two, everything that they get to read, I want them to do independent research. You got a question, you learn how to do research based upon that question, based upon the truth claims that this author makes in this text. Part of our problem has been in education is that we resorted to true and false and multiple choice because we got to teach so many students so forth and so on. We moved away from ideas and what we could used to call critical thinking. OK. All right. And so we got to the point also on the left. OK. And the problem with 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 ideologues on the left or the right. All right. Is that they believe that they have they are the absolute authority on truth. Nope, you're not. OK. OK. I want you to challenge the left just as hard as you challenge the right. My job is not to teach students what to think, but to teach students how to think. OK. So where is my faith and confidence? My hope comes from the basic fact that Survival dictates that we think, okay, and that we help our students to critically think and reflect. And the more we do that, the better, the better the, the, uh, our hope is. So as long as I got a job, as long as you all are teaching, all right, okay, as, by the way, but the fact that there are 40 states now trying to pass laws to make what I do illegal, Let's me know that I am a threat. OK. All right. That that that. that oh, let me let me give let me give you one more example. Back in World War. Was it World War Two uh, uh, in the early part? Uh, air, air pilots. They, they didn't have radar, so they didn't know when they were over target. They knew they were over target. Therefore, when the lights turn on, they got shot at. OK. Uh, guess what? If people are shooting at you. The spotlight is shining on you. Guess what? You're over the target. Okay. You're where you need to be. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, the fact that the things, the work that we do is being so critical, criticized. Okay. They would not be agitated if we were not a pressing threat to their existence. Dr. Coates, this has been a wonderful conversation. Before we go, just just tell me, give me some hope. What's the promise for the future of America? We do not wait nor expect freedom to come from legislation or judicial decrees. We are by free by virtue of being human. And as we enjoy yet another Juneteenth, we continue to persevere, serve, invent and excel. We, by me, by any means necessary, will not only continue to survive, but we will thrive and set new standards of achievement. It is more than our right. It is our mandate from a creator of all 
we will settle for nothing less than full accountability and responsibility of past wrongs. No, we will not take any more promissory notes. We will, however, demand that schools and courts, political institutions, economic institutions, police and legislators act responsibly, equitably, justly for us and to us and our prosperity. To guarantee these premises, we promise to do the following. Litigate, congregate, agitate, propagate, and instigate in a continual revolutionary struggle. We shall do more than overcome. We shall be more deliberately and meticulously and strategically utilize and maximize our voting, our economies, our communities, and our allies to make this place great. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. Coates. Thank you. This was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.